When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What? We're live? Hi, ZFAC Super PAC. We're starting this show. We're doing something different. We are going live to the Super PAC supporters who pay $4.99 a month to be a part of this movement and have first dibs at our next guest. You are going to want to rip this guy a new one, okay, when you hear his story. Dr. Todd Strumwasser, okay, he is the Senior Vice President of Operations for like the San Francisco Bay Area Dignity Health Hospitals. He is a physician, but also a leader and an administrator, and we are here to ask him the tough questions. He's gonna talk to us about clinical leadership and why we need it, uh, and all the sort of ins and outs about how we're gonna transform healthcare with our partners in clinical leadership instead of an us and them scenario, unless we hate him, in which case it will be us and them. Todd, what up fam? Thank you so much for having me here. This is like a dream come true for me. Did you hear that guys? An administrator just said it's a dream come true to be on our show. We have broken some kind of sound barrier, I think. Something yeah. tremendous has You happened. have, I haven't. But no, 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 you, the <clears> fact <throat> that you actually came out from the Bay to be here is a big honor for us actually. And the reason we got connected is you reached out, you'd seen the show and we had a call. And I'm like, okay, I'm gonna hate this guy. He's an administrator. I know, cause I was an administrator at Turntable and I hated myself. And then I, 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 lo I love you. I love what you're doing. I love, I love the fact that you're trying to lead with clinical experience. And we talked about the, 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 the hard path of trying to do that. One thing I wanna say is this show, after we get comments from our super PAC and questions for you, we're gonna then put it live to the full squad maybe later in the week. Because I wanna give the super PAC, who, they are our super fans, man. These are the people who really wanna transform healthcare to the point where they're spending $4.99 a month to be a part of this. We want uh, them to weigh in and go, okay, these are the key things we want to hit that'll then inform the main page. So it really empowers them to have a voice. Great. So let me ask you a question, man. You, you were a UC Davis undergrad. Right. I used to teach MCAT at UC Davis. Wow. Yeah, the AGS, man. I should have taken that. Yeah, you should have taken it. Yeah, then I, you would have passed. I messed those up bad. Did you? Yeah. I actually didn't do great on the MCAT. <laughs> like my best score was general chemistry, which I knew the least about. And then wow. they made me teach general chemistry at the MCAT course. And I'm like, uh, P equals NRT. I don't, <laughs> what? It was crazy. Yeah. But then you, then you finished that and you went to, where was it? Uh, USC medical school. USC. Yeah. And then after that, you did residency in Seattle. At Seattle University of Washington in anesthesiology for three years. Now it's a four-year program. Oh, so you and grandfathered I, I in. Grandfathered in, and um, then I practiced in Seattle for 25 years. Wow, yeah, how are time. you not just so depressed all the time? I am, well, I'm not depressed because I'm no longer doing it. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, you know, part of it's Seattle, but, you know, living there in the gray, and, 
and that that can be hard. And part of it is anything we do, you know, that we get stuck into, you know, there's burnout, right? Mm. And um, and um, there's a lot of burnout in anesthesia. There's a lot of burnout in a lot of fields. But what was was Washington worse? Because I tell you, I'm deeply affected by weather. And even at UCSF, it would be foggy all the time. Right. It was just miserable for me. Yeah, so my wife, who's an artist and mm. needs light, mm. this was, like, terrible for her. She had to get out of there. Because there's, like, you know, two months a year that you get reliable sunshine. The rest of the time, it's a gray hanging over there. And it's not mm. raining a lot, but it's gray. Yeah, yeah. So it, it really works on people. Not everyone, but some people get that seasonal affective disorder there. Y yep, 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 for real. Yeah. But you somehow transitioned from full-time anesthesia right. to CEO ultimately of Swedish. Well, I was the chief executive of the two downtown Swedish campuses. Got it. Um, the way this came about was, so we had, my anesthesia group, there were uh, 60 of us at the mm. time, now there's over 100. And um, I was the managing partner, and which was really a hellish work. <laughs> because basically you're telling all your colleagues what to do all the time, and they hate you. Yeah, so because the, the doctors hate being managed. They hate being managed. Right, and so does everybody else. And, but if you're one of them and you're managing them, they tolerate it knowing that you're going to come back and then they're going to beat the hell out of you. Right, right, right. Yeah, right. Yeah. They're going to so yell at you. So what yeah. I did was I sort of saw that coming back in part, and I'm like, oh, I'm not going to come back in. Yeah. And I uh, became chief of staff at Swedish, which was really a cool thing to do. Because as an anesthesiologist, you're stuck in the OR all day long. You don't know what's happening on the wards. I learned about hospital medicine, length of stay, productivity, you know, hospital-acquired conditions, all these things you don't know about in the OR mm. as chief of staff. And then I went to business school at University of Washington. Oh, so you went back, yeah. got an MBA. Yeah, I worked at Cal, went to school at night, didn't get the full MBA, just did a one-year program. And they hired me back to be the vice president of medical affairs. And then Swedish got acquired by Providence, and mm. I became the chief operating officer at the downtown two Seattle campuses. And then I became the chief executive, and then I got this call to come down to the Bay Area. I'm like, I'll be there. Yeah, because you're done. <laughs> you're done with the gray. Yeah, yeah I'm done with the gray. And so I've been in the Bay Area for four years now, over four hospitals in the in the San Francisco Bay Area, St. Mary's, St. Francis, Sequoia, and Dominican. Great hospitals. Down to Santa Cruz and up to San Francisco. So that full northern bay. Yeah. But, you know, so here's a question. Why? Why did you leave clinical medicine? Because there's a shame factor. There is a shame and factor. And there's a jealousy factor, both. Both. And that's yeah. the interesting thing. That's the dynamic that mm. we encounter is that I, I hate you, but can you tell me how you did this and I can do it too? But, you know, the other thing, too, that I'll, you know, that I'll say is, you know, um, um, it's, it's, it's nice using a different part of your brain. And what I, you know, and so anyway, that was very good. Mm. Um, and happy to do that. Um, you mean the MBA part of it and the leadership yeah, part of it? Yeah, just looking at things differently and being right. a leader and trying to affect change at a, on a broader level. Was the uh, MBA necessary or was it? You know, the, the business school experience helps so that you learn the language. So I can, I, see. I know what things like ROI is and EBITDA and uh, PNL and a lot more acronyms that I'd have to teach you, but I don't have the time. Um, sorry, earnings before interest and depreciation and something else, EBITDA. Whoa. That's right. 80%. You nailed it. 80%. Four out of five. I'm amortization. Poly, I'm a, amortization. That's yeah. a good one. Yeah. You pass. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So anyways. So, so you learn the language. You learn yeah. the language so you can talk to the CFOs and they can't bamboozle you, but you can still bamboozle them because they don't know medicine. They don't know medicine. That's the cool part. Ah, yeah. so that's a secret. That's a secret. So would you say, and, and I think you know, having gone this route, we, we'll dig more into it, but part of the reason I wanted you on the show is because I want to inspire other clinicians 
to not be afraid to say, okay, you know what, I can be a leader, not a manager, I can be a leader in an organization because I can speak some business-ish, yeah. but I know patients, I know my colleagues, I know how we work, and I know what we need to do. Right. So I can help lead us to this better vision of how things can be done. Uh, how, how hard, how scary was it for you to go that route, or was it more scary not to go that route and stay in clinical medicine the so, way things are going? So, well, that's the other thing, too. As, so as an anesthesiologist, which I was a proceduralist, basically, you know, I put in art lines and CVPs and swans and, you know, did epidural blocks and things. So, you know, using your psychomotor skills a lot. When I dropped down to one day a week, I felt a little scary. I mm. felt like I wasn't quite safe. You weren't up to speed. I wasn't yeah. up to speed. So, yeah. you know, that's the thing. And, and if you're in a cognitive field, like a, a rheumatologist, you can probably, you know, work one day a year yeah. and still be safe. Yeah. As an anesthesiologist, I started having to rethink everything I was doing. And I was like, I need to fish or cut bait. Mm. So the muscle memory started to muscle fade. Muscle memory. And also yeah. just all the routines that you get into that you don't even think about. They're unconscious. About right. How I'm going to take care of you on the operating table. And I'm going to keep you, you know, euthermic, normotensive, and make sure all the, keep your oxygen levels up, and how am I going to do all that stuff? You yeah, know, yeah, 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 yeah. Reliably. Yeah, so, so it makes sense. So you had to ultimately say, it's been about seven years or so right. since, since you've physically been in the OR doing that work. Right. Right. And you know what? There's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of doctors, and this happened at my old organization as a, a Sutter Health Palo Alto Medical Foundation, and, you know, our clinical leaders would still practice 30% time, 40% time, and the other doctors would give them shit. Right. They would say, you know, uh, you would, do you even see patients? It's like, dude, right. a third of my time. And, and, and when they go to z close to zero, people just get outraged. But the truth is, what, what they don't realize is, and I think they do realize it, they just, they, they're not able to accept it, is that to do what you do, okay, you have all this area under the curve of clinical experience. You've made this impact. You've also conditioned yourself to understand that side. Now, to really make a difference, you have to focus on this leadership role. I mean, is that wrong? Am I getting it wrong that way? No, I mean, no, I, I think you're right. You focus mm. on the leadership role. The, the, the thing about it is you have credibility because you've been a physician, you've taken care of patients. Mm. I still make rounds in the hospitals, you know, I, with my chief medical officers, you know, I, I know what questions to ask. I know what should be happening. I know what the expectations are. Mm. You know, so being able to talk business to the physicians and medicine to the administrators puts you in kind of a rarefied air. It's like the Rosetta Stone. It really, there are, as I was telling you earlier, there's very few physician administrators. Mm. Very, very That's few. That's crazy to me. It's really crazy. Because a lot of them are entrepreneurial. A lot of them have a business mind. But what ends up happening is they end up going into these, like, they'll open up, you know, outpatient knee you know, ortho practice and churn volume and make a lot of money that way and then invest in properties and do stuff like that. How about <laughs> doing something where you're actually giving back to the profession that gave so much to you by improving it. So the question I always ask is, what's the problem you're trying to solve? You know, so when you have doctors that are doing concierge medicine, and I know there's other names for it, it's like, are you really, so your goal, your mission statement is, I'm going to improve healthcare access for rich people? It's just not real compelling to me. Yeah. So, you know, so what's the problem you're trying to solve? Well, the problem that I'm trying to solve is we're trying to, improve the quality and access and cost of healthcare for everyone. Right. Well, and, and, and I would say, you know, and I'll, I'll say there's concierge and then there's direct primary right. care at the lower set end of that. And they're really looking at middle class and, and even poorer people who have no, no care and they're able to provide for a membership fee. But I think you're right, the problem to be solved, and that's a business way of thinking. What, what, what is the problem to be solved? Now, so here's, let me segue that into the way we measure success now 
in hospitals. So let's, let's use something that's very polarizing because I know a lot of our fans are gonna hate even this, this acronym and that's HCAPS. So now you're the evil hospital administrator. Partially your hospital is getting rated on HCAP scores. What are they? Why are they, are they useful? What are your thoughts on it? So the federal government years ago decided that they were gonna withhold some of the money that they give us, us being hospitals, based upon how well patients experience the care they're getting. Mm -hmm. So that wanna be one of the many metrics that they're gonna not pay you more for, but pay you less if you screw up. So, so in other words, you would normally get X. Yeah. Now they're saying, no, 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 we're gonna give you less than that, but if you do okay on these metrics, we'll give you more. Exactly, uh -huh. exactly. But you know, this is one of the things I actually agree with. So I think that the way patients experience Todd, us. Is, Tad is very angry at you, Todd. <laughs> Tad is very angry at you. No, the way going. patients experience us is very important. All of us have been on the other side of it. We've been consumers of healthcare. And we've, some of us have had pretty crappy experiences, right? And yeah, and so you're saying, why does it have to be this way? You know, why does a nurse have to like throw the bedpan at me? Why does, you know, someone have to be snarky with me? You know, I mean, because you're there on the scariest day of your life and you're the most vulnerable and you're the most worried. So, you know, all human kindness can go a long way. Oh, I see you threw in the Dignity Health slogan there. Nice. Look at you, you know what? This interview is over. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, okay, so let me, let me uh, you and I agree 100% on this, that the, the patient experience is a crucial factor. And I'm a believer that we're all just uh, these conscious agents interacting with each other and experience is the currency of the realm. So in other words, all we are is experiences and we're experiencing each other right now. Todd is right. experiencing the icon of me and we're yeah. communicating. So this is crucial, but I think part of the problem is with all the commodification of the staff, how is it possible for us to provide this experience when we're feeling like cogs in a very broken machine? We're and, suffering moral injury from it. Right, and that's yeah. why we need more physicians and clinicians running hospitals. Because right now you've got somebody telling you, okay, you're a hospitalist, you're gonna have 18 patients tonight. Why? Mm -hmm. Because that's what we need to have you do. That's, that's gonna be your benchmark, your expectation. Yeah. Well, what if my patients are really sick? Do I still want 18 or maybe do I want 10? So we want people to understand medicine and you know, what's the expectation of you as a clinician? Because obviously if I give you 100 sick patients to manage your HCAP scores, they're gonna suck, right? Yeah. And, and that's, what, that's what some of them tell me is that you know, we're being overloaded right now. Right. So how can you expect us to, to do this? Now, now some of that is because in this country we have fewer doctors per capita than say in Europe, et cetera, because I think physicians have kind of pushed back to keep the number of slots low, keep the salaries high, so they get paid pretty decently, but they have to work really, really hard. Is the answer having more slots for residency? I think that's part of it. I think also using allied health professionals, I'll, I'll right. use that term. Yeah, tell me, tell me about this. Don't, don't say mid-level because it yeah. triggers everybody. Yeah. But you know, nurse practitioners, PAs, yeah, absolutely. Uh, APRNs. Medical, medical assistants, you know, but why yeah. is that not an attack on my sovereignty and autonomy as a doctor? Because you're still gonna be the doc making the medical judgment, but in order for, for you to be supported as this brain sitting on a pedestal, you wanna have a lot of people around you that are taking vital signs, that are you know, collating the labs for you and bringing them to you and scribes so that you can actually do the stuff. You know, you've heard the term operate at the top of your license. Right. So you can do all the stuff you're trained to do when you were a medical student and a resident. So how? So let's say, how does a PA fit into the pantheon of this in your operational I, experience? I think PAs can do quite a bit of stuff. I mean, PAs, you know, there's, you know, when you go into the ER these days, chances are very good unless you've got a ruptured 
AAA, you're going to have a PA looking after you because uh, yeah. that's how ERs have become more efficient. So depending upon the acuity of the illness you come in with, a PA can see you and then they should be able to triage you, mm. you know, triage you to a higher level of mm -hmm. care mm -hmm. or be able to um, report on you to the, to the MD so the MD can come in and, you know, it takes a village is how I would put it. So in other words, yeah, the, the bottom line is it's a team. <clears throat> it's a team. So I think where people get very triggered is nurse practitioners, PAs are going to replace doctors or they're going to practice independently in a rural area and replace doctors. And honestly, and this is my stance on that, I think everyone should practice at the top of their license, but we have to be very careful what that license is. So if your scope of practice is X, then practice at the top of that in a right. team. But I'm really, I, I get nervous when, because we know the kind of levels of clinical judgment that it does take. It takes a lot of training and some nurse practitioners have it because from pure experience and some, some don't, some doctors don't have it. So in some way, you know, the guest we had on the other day was talking about this. How do we even test whether our clinicians are practicing without this variation in care in a consistent way? Well, you know, this is a little bit of the hope of the EHR now. The dreaded EHR has not lived up to its expectations. To say the least. To yeah. say the least. So yeah. Billions upon billions of dollars have been spent, and we don't really have a lot to show for it. Mm. One of the things we were hoping for is with computer order physician entry, we could have algorithmic things happening. So yeah. patient comes in with leukocytosis and, you know, tachypnea and tachycardia, you could do the sepsis protocol. Right. right, and you could use the sepsis um, order set, right, and that would somewhat force you to do things in an evidence-based way. But we still have physicians opting out, and and you know we and we lose patients on that based on that. You know, I mean, we had an, an example I uh, came across recently where a patient came in with those very three things: you know, high white, high white count, tachycardic, febrile, and they should have started a sepsis protocol. Mm -hmm. But because the guy was eating a turkey sandwich, wait a minute eating a turkey sandwich. He's got to be okay. Positive turkey sandwich sign. You remember right, that one? Right, I do. Yeah, but you know, it also you... means they just got dilated. <laughs> 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 exactly. Yeah. So, so then they dismissed all the objective data and they went to more of a subjective clinical judgment, sent the patient home. They came back in fluoride sepsis. This is the thing. So uh, I actually, and I think some of my fans will be surprised to hear this from me. I was actually a big fan of our order sets. In Epic, and I'll tell you why. As a hospitalist, it's very much you know. I know in anesthesia, I know in surgery, it is like flying a plane. There are there are checklists. You do need to make sure you don't miss anything. Why is that any different in hospital medicine? ER docs will tell you this. They'll say uh, we're not a air, we're if you're comparing us to a pilot, it's like we're flying 30 planes at a time, and they're all trying to crash. All we're trying to do is keep them in the air. We don't, we can't get involved in the subtlety. And I, I think there's some truth and some falsity to some simplification of that. But for a hospital doc like myself, having an order set meant this to me. Oh, I didn't forget the DVT prophylaxis. Exactly. I didn't forget, you know what? This is interesting. Could this guy have sepsis? Why counts a little elevated, a little tachypnic. Doesn't, I wasn't suspecting it, but now I'm wondering, let me just do this and, and it'll save your ass. Yeah. And because we're human beings and we can't hold all this in our head, especially when we have 18 patients. Right. And that's the whole human error thing. You know, where there's always going to be human error. So how do we keep our patients safe? How do right. we not have medical errors? What do we lose? Was it 300,000 lives a year? Some big number like that? It's because we're human and no one's, no one's our wingman. We need a wingman. Right. You know, so, you know. Um, someone to say, hey, Todd, have you thought about, you know, diabetic ketoacidosis here? Have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? 
And the key thing is not having ego push back. So, so we were talking to Bill Rifkin the other day, I think yeah. you saw that show, and the whole, you know, we didn't even get into some of the deeper stuff. I mean, we are causing harm on an epic scale, right. largely due to physician and clinician egos saying, no, 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 you don't tell me how to do things. But, but, but no, we're just trying to say, <laughs> if you do this one protocol, you can have the autonomy to tweak it. Right. You, you know, we're not saying you have to do it. It's just, this will help save yeah. your patient's lives. And, 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 and eliminate this unexplained variation in care where one doc does it this way, one doc does it this, but if you look at their outcomes, they are different outcomes. Right. It's not, and as we said, there's a lot in medicine where we just don't know. So oh. do it however you like because we just don't know, but there's a lot where we do. So you just nailed it and, and you brought up another really big important subject which is patient safety. Mm. And why can't we in healthcare be as safe as the airline industry? And there, we should be safer. We should be safer. Yeah. The nuclear power industry. And all of these industries went through this transformation where they said, what will it take to be zero error? And what they came up with was something what you just described, which is power distance. Mm. So, yes, I'm the doctor. But if the nurse says to me, you know, Dr. Stromwasser, um, why are you wearing your mask right now? You're in the operating room. I'm like, oh, shit, I'm put my mask on. Yeah. But if I'm an asshole, I'm going to start yelling at that nurse and say, how dare you? I'm a doctor. You didn't know that Thursdays are no mask days, whatever I say, come up with. You know, <laughs> so, so you have to decrease the power distance to empower everyone to be able to speak up and say, you know, uh, Dr. Demania, it feels like you should be um, washing your hands before you go into that patient's room. I'll be like, you shut your hole. Yeah, exactly. I'm the doctor, and then I'm washing my hands. So now <laughs> in the airline industry, the co-pilot can say to the pilot, you know what? I'm not sure we went through this checklist. Could we do this? And he can't say, you're fired. Can't say that anymore. Can't say it anymore. No. Well, Malcolm, this is a great. This is actually a very important topic of discussion because we have a lot of nurses in the audience, and the thing is, they feel scared to speak up. Now they're protocoled so much that they, the critical thinking has been less important in their training because now they're like, well, you make sure these click these boxes in Epic or whatever. But the thing is, uh, Malcolm Gladwell wrote the book. Uh, I think it might, I don't know if it was Outliers or uh, equivalent. They're all the same. It's yeah, all yeah. like here's stuff. That's obvious. <laughs> Let me write a book about it. But the obvious stuff that he this said. This will was, happen to you someday. So exactly. I know. I'll write a book. I'll be like, hey, guys, Health 3.0. What the yeah, heck? My, my kids are going to college right now. Here's another book. Yeah, here's another book. Right. I need the money um, I need in advance. The, 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 what he said was in, it was Korean Airlines. And that was the example they gave. And Korean Airlines, for a period of time, had the worst safety record in the industry. And when the uh, evil... HCAPs people in airlines, the regulators, yeah. looked at it. What they found was in Korean culture and even within the language is embedded a power distance and a hierarchy. So there's even honorifics that you use based on your hierarchical status, seniority, et cetera. So in the cockpit in a Korean airlines, and it, think, think about the OR. It's yeah. the same thing. Think about the floor with the nurses calling the docs afraid to say something, right? Or tell you that you didn't wash your hands in mask. You, you could, they couldn't address the captain, the co-pilot, right. couldn't address the captain, even though the captain was heading towards a cliff. They, they, would, they crashed into the, into the cliff instead of violating the social order. And then they changed it. They said, okay, no, 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 no. Now we're gonna change how we do this protocol. And their safety record went to like one of the top in the business. Absolutely. Overnight. That's, that's, that's key. And all four of my hospitals right now are doing this culture of safety training, what it's called, keep me safe training. And it's all about that. Yeah, but how, how do you, so, I mean, let, let me see if there's some comments that address this. But see, like, you know, like Jen Walters, um, not a hospital nurse, so order sets sound like uh, SOPs, standard operating procedures. Is that a realistic comparison? Used to be a lab rat for microbiology on my campus. So are they like standard operating procedures? 
Is there such a thing when you have a human being at the other end that has a million different potential etiologies and right. stuff going on? So when you and I were in training, you know, if we had told our attending, you know, I had a patient with, you know, these were his lab values, and he'd say, well, don't tell me, we're not going to treat lab values, we're going to treat the patient. So what do you think? Yeah. So they were giving us license to yeah. use clinical judgment. Autonomy and license. And now things have shifted, and now we're saying, okay, you know, you can have a little bit of, of autonomy, but for the most part, if you've got X, Y, and Z, you need to do A mm. or B. Mm. Uh, so we're not becoming robots, but we're taking away the art of medicine, because mm. it used to be called the art of yeah. medicine, right? Yeah. Well, I think there should be a balance between art, business, and science of medicine. <clears throat> And like Courtney Davis says, I watched a physician use the wrong size IO needle on an obese patient. It was then uh, I knew if I was dying, I would never want them working on me, Courtney Davis. Now, let me push back on this. So you see this, yeah. it ought to be that you go, you know, I'm, I was curious, that seems like it's a little big or a little small, wouldn't you use this one? Wouldn't you wanna use that no matter where you are in the hierarchy as a teachable moment for that clinician instead of saying, oh, that's a person I'm never gonna deal with again. Well, that's exactly right. You right. have to, but it has it's also the how. How you do this. How you do it. You don't so, yell in front of the patient and say, God damn it, what are you doing? And we see that all yeah. the time. Oh, and, yeah. So it's like, you know, excuse me, doctor, could I speak with you in front of Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and have a rapport and a respect for one another. Right. And I'm not, and I'm, Courtney, I'm not criticizing you. I'm saying this is common because yeah. we're afraid we're going to be retributed against. Some doctors will just eat your, bite your head off if you dare to question them. Right. And, but, but you know, the best doctors I've worked with, they're not like that. They want, you know, and, and I'm not gonna put myself in the pantheon of best doctors, but I relied on the rest of the staff to help me. Oh. I mean, I wanted them to save my ass because I would screw it up. When, when I first started practice, and I thought I was the smartest anesthesiologist on the planet, right? I was board certified, newly trained. I was so mm -hmm. smart. And I had an, uh, a recovery room nurse pull me aside and said, Dr. Stromos, I wanna tell you something. All of your patients in the recovery room are barfing. Oh, I'm like, all of them? Well, mostly, most of them. I'm like, oh my God, that's terrible. What should I do? And she said, well, go talk to Dr. Eng, find out what he does. So I went and talked to Dr. Eng, and Dr. Eng had a cocktail he used, and I adopted it, and guess what? My patient stopped barfing. So she hadn't had the audacity to approach me, and I hadn't had the humility to listen to what she was saying. All my patients would have barfed for the next 25 years. Yeah, and you never would have changed because one of the things that Dr. Rifkin brought up is that we have no capacity as clinicians yet to know what our neighbors are doing. Right. What what are other people, you go to a conference and people are like, well, there's some guy on the stage, it's always a guy, and he's like, well, the thing that I do for my gout <laughs> is I make sure to insert the needle just below the thing and then I send it off right away. That's all you know. You don't know what the best practices are that your neighbors are doing, and, and I think that's a problem. So when you, when you learned that, it was a, a nurse who was the conduit of that. Right. Tell me more about nurses. You're the operations guy. Yeah. They're crucial to everything in the hospital, Yet there are some challenges, right? Well, I mean, what, what do you think is going on? There's lots of challenges. So, so the pay rate, so right now, if I look at, for every dollar that the hospital brings in, 60 to 70 cents of that dollar goes to um, uh, labor costs. Right. And so it's mostly nurses and you know others that work in the hospital. What about doctors? Where are they on that? Well, the doctors don't fit into that. Well, in the state of California, right. so um, there's a foundation that's a separate entity. Yeah. So, but you're right. Technically, the doctors and yes, the doctors are 
a lot of that as well. Right. But um, not technically paid by the hospital necessarily. Yeah, right? Not in the state of California. Right. You're right. Because there's uh, corporate <clears throat> practice of medicine. Corporate laws, practice of medicine. Right. right. But you're right. Uh, we've overpaid doctors. And we've paid doctors to do the wrong things, too. So when you That's pay. That's really what it is. Not overpaying. Yeah. It's paying them to do the wrong yeah. things. Yeah. So there was a famous case, and I'm sure those of you that are listening may have watched this in Seattle Times a couple of years ago, where a neurosurgeon racked up an enormous number of RVUs. Everybody got craniotomies. And he himself was paid on an RVU basis. So mm -hmm. guess what, he did very well. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there was a lot of scrutiny on this because should all of those patients gotten craniotomies? Mm. So this is the thing that I think we all need to talk about as a ma mature adults is, guess what, the very things we pay for is what we get. Yeah. So if you pay doctors for RVUs, you're gonna get RVUs. Yeah, to me this is insane, and this is yeah. the fundamental premise of what we're trying to do in terms of transforming healthcare, which is we should be paid to actually do the right thing for patients, not necessarily to do things to patients. Right. Now, there are some specialties where it's very tough tough to go to a, like a capitated or a fee-for-outcome or a bundled, but I think for most, it's where we have to go, and then we have to start training our medical students to understand that just because you can do something doesn't mean you should, and we need to really have true shared decision-making with our patients. And, and, and the power distances, and again, I like that term. I, ha I haven't heard it in a while. It's a good term. It's like, this is, what, this is why you got your MBA, so that you could throw around shit like power distance. I got a ton of them. You got, give me some more. Throw some more terms out. Uh, oh, later, later. Okay, good, good, yeah. I like technical deep dive, um, field level traction. We're really getting some field level traction out there. <laughs> do, you, do you ever, you know, do you ever feel you're walking through the hospital and the doctors and stuff look at you like you're this asshole trader? They hate me. Do they really? Well, some of them do. I mean, yeah. as I say, it's a mixture between jealousy and hatred and just kind of like, what What happened to you? And, you know, so it's... it's well, and that's really encouraging right. more to go into leadership, isn't it? When we well, behave like that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Because the moment you work for administration, you've gone to the dark side. Right, right, right. Well, look, you know, I want to go back to the nursing thing because you said something. So yeah. labor costs are 60%. Labor costs are high. Right. Nurses are, I, w I think, very reasonably paid nowadays. At least uh, in the Bay Area. At least in the Bay Area. Right. And they are, nurses are doing the bulk of the frontline work, right? And um, we need nurses. We love nurses. Um, but in California, they also have um, legislated nurse, nursing ratios. Which is happening in, Ma they're, they're, it's up for vote in Massachusetts. Now, you're the evil administrator. Tell right. me what you think about this. I don't think it's a good idea because, you know, when you legislate things, like I remember when this, I don't know if you remember this, so the city of Berkeley um, uh, prohibited um, ECTs. I'm like, seriously, as a county or as a city, you can forbid a... a uh, Electroconvulsive uh, therapy. Yeah, you can yeah. say no more laparoscopic cholecystectomies, right. no more, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. So right. I, I don't know if that's still on the books, but I think when the government gets involved at that level, they don't really understand. So sometimes nursing ratios need to be four to one, sometimes three to one, sometimes five to one, based on acuity, based on a number of things. It's not something we want Donald Trump to weigh in on. Right. or the Senate or Congress. It's just wrong, it's so, wrong-minded. So let me, let me push back and say, well, you know, Upton Sinclair in the jungle describes this horrible working environment where children are laboring in our food industry and people are dying from food poisoning, et cetera. Don't we need some regulation to prevent hospitals? Because you, you said 60% of the cost is labor. Well, you're gonna wanna squeeze that cost by changing staffing ratios potentially in an unsafe way. Isn't that true or no? I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. So yeah. w the way I approach all this stuff is I want to give the best care possible. I'm not just 
I'm not running for office. <laughs> I want to give the best care possible, like have the best patient experience and the best quality outcomes. And then I think the business end will take care of itself. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to be the business guy who's going to say, let's just make a lot of money and to hell with everything else. That's why we need more clinicians mm. doing healthcare administration because we took the Hippocratic Oath, right? Mm-hmm. We know what the right thing to do is. We're you know, not saying we're all going to do the right thing, but we know what the right thing is. So, so, so how do you think you guys would manage uh, nurse staffing in the absence of uh, the California legislation? Well, the same way we did it in Seattle. So we, right. we staffed according to need. We staffed according to how many patients were with this level of acuity were in this ward. And, so acuity-based. Yeah, acuity-based. Right. And, and Location-based. Demand-based. Right. And, and we were able to do it properly. And um, the nursing unions in the state of Washington were pushing for uh, legislated um, uh, ratios, but they never, it never got there. Got it. Have you heard about the Massachusetts legislation? No, I haven't. Okay, I get a lot of questions about it from nurses on both sides. Hmm. So it's interesting because it, there are nurses practicing. Some feel that it should be legislated, and others feel like, no, it, it's a, another regulation that's then going to force the hospital to cut corners elsewhere to pay for mandated staffing. Right. Uh, so I haven't weighed in directly because I don't know enough about this issue, and I wanted an expert on the show. But I think, I think that, and again, getting into the politics of it is not something I typically do. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting because this is on people's minds. It's that tension between... Can I do my job? Do I have the resources? Do I have the tools? Do I have the autonomy? Are my leaders leading or are they managing me? And you know, what are your thoughts on this? You know, I, I think as long as we all agree as to why we're coming to work, what our mission statement is, you know, I'm not doing a commercial for Dignity Health, but we do care for the poor and vulnerable. And that's, that's our mission statement. You know, everyone comes in regardless of your ability to pay. And we try to make that work somehow. Mm. So, um, you know, I think that when everyone who's working there understands what the mission is and understands why we're there, mm. I think we're all more likely to do the right thing, particularly when we're good people about it. We're not, you know, I'm not coming in there with a whip saying, you know, the morale will improve or the beatings will continue. I'm, I'm not saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of opinions in the comments about uh, staffing ratios, things like that. Um, Georgette says, love my order set, saves my ass when I have to work with an intensivist who used to be the quote-unquote boss and now is age old yet can't let the reins go. So this actually, I think to some extent, you know, there's a saying, right, medicine changes one funeral at a time. And, and I, think, I think it's true because yeah. we condition our docs, they get older, they don't change their ways. Then you show up with an EHR, you show up with order sets and they're like, blah, 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 blah. By, by sort of, to some extent, compelling it, it actually does shift behavior. Context does discern behavior. We had Robbie Pearl, yeah. Kaiser CEO, yeah. on the show. I love yeah. it because I, I think yeah. like every competitor in the Bay Area has somehow been on the show. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he was saying the same thing. It's like, what we set our incentives. Yeah. Is it our view? Is it salary? Is, what is the context? And this idea of the neurosurgeon doing all the craniotomies, the same thing happened to cardiac bypass cabbage in Northern Cali. They were looking in Reading and there was a group of them just doing cabbage on everyone. Right. And, and, and they were not bad human beings. What was happening is they're seeing these incentives, they're conditioned to do stuff to people. They do stuff, they think they're doing good. If you actually look at the data, they're doing harm and they're costing money. Right. But they don't know it at all because they're blind to it. It's, it's, it's also a matter of like, you know, you know, if you have a hammer, the whole world's a nail. Of course. You know, so if you're a cardiac surgeon, you want to solve everything with, you know, a sternotomy. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like your favorite show, New Amsterdam, and how you <laughs> fired them all. <laughs> That was a great scene, though. <laughs> was, yeah, you, you're fired. And uh, yes, I am serious. All right? And they just also, got up and walked out. Also, there's an acute diabetic with chest pain in the ear right now who probably needs a cabbage. 
which one of y'all is going to do it that I just fired? <laughs> I know. You have to admit, it was very interesting. It was interesting. I like that they're actually just raising these crazy issues. Well, what's really interesting is that when I was growing up, I was watching Ben Casey and Dr. Kildare. Yeah. And these doctors were just deified. Deified, yeah. And now it's a way more of a, um, I want to say realistic, but, you know, slightly more uh, cynical approach to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, very much so. Now, now I think Hollywood is taking the tack that what, what patients are feeling, yeah. which is this is broken. Like, you know, Tom on the show has gone through this with his dad. We've all been patients. It's very, very, very hard. But when you have that amazing experience, right, where everybody's firing on all cylinders and, and the nurses are collaborating with the doctors, collaborating with the RTs, collaborating with the dietitian and the housekeeper and everybody, and there's a compassion that wells up and a purpose in the center of it that comes through, then you know, okay, this is a thing. And my challenge is how do you create that? How do you create that? So yeah. do you think the business stuff, the, the management training that you got helps you to do that? Or do you think it's another hurdle in the way of just transcending that? You know, I think it, <clears throat> one of the things we get no training in a medical school is how do we hire people? Right, no clue. Yeah, I, I hired these two assholes. I know. I regret it every single day. <laughs> There's not a day that goes by they're back there well, laughing. You could do a new Amsterdam, just fire them both right Yeah, now. okay. Guys, thanks for coming. Which one of you runs the show? All right. <laughs> you do work for me. Actually, we work for each other, which makes it really weird. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so. But sorry. anyway, you know, how, how do you choose people? How do you identify who's going to do a good job and who's going to do less than a good job? And that's nothing that, that we're ever taught. Yeah. So, you know, it's things you have to learn a little bit and things you have to rely on your gut for. Yeah. Well, tell, tell me, tell me, teach us now. Because you've been in this position now for a long time where you've been a, a, a clinical physician who now does leadership. You're in a really respected organization that I, I've spoken for Dignity before. I found their leadership to be fairly enlightened. Right. Um, their director of nursing, Paige, was fantastic. These are good people. And again, they're not sponsoring the show or anything. You're coming on your right. own. But tell us, tell us, what would you like this big audience of Z-Packers to kind of know, what, what are the issues that matter to you? What would you ask of them in terms of leadership and in terms of how they work with their leaders? Right, so first of all, I think we need more clinicians in leadership. Mm. We need more clinicians who want to run hospitals, want to run medical groups, want to be division leaders. We need more people to step up. Mm. And, and what I think of is, the thing that kind of keeps me going every day is I think of what are the things that patients want from us? I think there's four things. Mm. When you go in and you're a patient, you want to be cured, number one. You want them to be kind to you. You want to be kept safe. And you don't want to be bankrupt. So those are the four things yeah. that all patients want. Seems like basic needs. Basic needs. So how do we address those needs? Right. How do we do a good job of keeping our patients safe, being kind to them, actually coming up with high quality, good outcomes, and in the end, not bankrupting them? Our country, as you know, um, you know, we do a terrible job yeah. with having cost-effective health care. Yeah. And one of the things... I'm sorry, I, as Jason says, yeah. we're reactive, not proactive. That's right. That's how we are. Yeah. So continue. Yeah. So one of the big things I want to put out there is clinical transformation. You call it healthcare 3.0, I think. Well, there are a number of names for it. But what I mean is, as physicians, we can develop and help develop protocols that are not only have better outcomes, but are um, less costly and actually you know, improve our likelihood to do well. A good example is when I was in medical school, we gave everyone blood. 
If, you're, yeah. if your crit fell below 30, you got blood. You got, yep. Never give one, you give two units. And now, you know, we don't transfuse if you're down to near 21 or so, because yep. we learned it's a bad thing. So guess what we accomplished? We lowered our costs, we improved our outcome, improved our length of stay, boom, 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 home run. Yeah. Doctors did that. We need more things like that. That's a great example. By doing less, we've actually done more. Right. And, and, and have you noticed this, that better quality care almost inevitably comes at a lower cost? That is, that's, I think those words should be inscribed somewhere because yeah. that's a true epiphany yeah. that I learned. And I think it's really true. Yeah. So people are always asking me, how are we going to fix healthcare? When will Health 3.0 come? Yeah. You guys, it's not, it's not when, how. It must come. To lower the cost, we have to improve quality. Right. It's the, otherwise, it's the opposite. We can raise costs and watch, watch the quality decrease. That's what we've seen. It's, a, right. it's an inverse correlation for a variety of reasons. Because doctors like shiny objects. Yeah. Right? Oh, like, yeah. Like robots. That's why I have my Camry, <laughs> because it's so shiny. Yeah. Perfect. Like robots. Tell, robots. Me about, tell me about it. You know, robots. It's like, so robots, I mean, these things cost millions of dollars. Yep. There's one robot company, so it's a monopoly. So they name their price. Da Vinci guys? Da Vinci. Yeah. But prove to me that patients get better outcomes with robots. I know there are a couple things Prostate you can do. Surgery. Prostate surgery. Mm -hmm. But gallbladders, eh, I'm mm -hmm. not so sure. You know, we, appendectomies, oh, come on. Hernias, nah. So how do you, you know, but the robot makers, they'll try to get you to do robots, robotic tonsillectomies. Mm -hmm. Seriously. That's Ridiculous. crazy. Ridiculous. It's a 10-minute operation. You should wow. be home in one hour, right? Yeah. So I don't want the hell 9,000 working on my tonsils. So. <laughs> my, my prostate? Hell yeah. <laughs> but maybe Alexa could do your tonsils. Alexa could do Alexa, remove tonsils. <laughs> Removing tonsils now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's terrifying. Yeah. No, but you're right. But you're right. And actually, uh, the Bleeding Edge documentary that we reviewed a while back was about FDA approval for devices, and Da Vinci was brought into it because yeah. they're really, again, apart from prostate and certain things, not... Right. Useful, but of course the surgeons might want to use it because it's cool and then they can advertise. And you can sit down and operate. Yeah, you right. It's like driving it's a car. Dope. I mean, Todd could operate. Yeah, I could operate that. Oh, right, yeah. yeah. But so that dollar that I get yeah. for, for doing healthcare, 60 cents goes to labor, mm -hmm. 35 cents goes to supply costs, the second biggest cost. So, okay, 60 cents to labor, 35 Five to supply. Supplies. Now, where are all my material management people at? Tell me, give me a holla in the comments. That's a huge cost. It is huge. In a hospital. And it, yeah, yeah. In, a, in a hospital. It's, yeah. it's very, very expensive. Right. And uh, it costs less in Europe. For some reason, they've got the cost, the supply cost thing down. Why? You know, I'm not really sure why. Yeah. For, you know, you tell me why pharma charges less for a hepatitis C drug in Europe than they do for mm -hmm. us. I think it's because we're willing to pay it. We're willing to pay it. And we don't have the negotiating clout. So Medicare cannot negotiate with... Uh, drug companies. But I, I love this new law that came out that says now the direct-to-consumer advertisements have to show what the price is. Ah, that's interesting, That's right? going to kill it. Yeah, so when you see, like, Embrel, it, you know, for that yeah. little trace of rheumatoid yeah. you may or may not have, ask your doctor about Embrel, and then Embrel costs $40,000 a shot. You're like, ah, okay, I'm out. I, I, my favorite is restless leg syndrome. I'm pretty sure I'm not looking. I'm I've got, sure it right got it right now, right now dude. Yeah. I'm like shaking my leg yeah, constantly. I could, I could sell you drugs for all day long for you that. You know what? And I'll buy them from you because you're an <laughs> anesthesiologist and I, I defer to authority. There's yeah. a power distance already. Yeah. I don't even want to question. And, and, and this is the other thing. I think there's a lot of superstition around questioning our doctors and even nurses questioning doctors. Doctors, you know, it, there's so much culture change that has to happen. But I think it has to start with us 
appreciating and understanding the business side of this. This is something that I don't, I don't emphasize. Like I get in my Doc Vader suit yeah. and I rally the troops because he's pissed off. And we have a thing called the Doc Vader Index. The better Doc Vader is doing, the worse healthcare is right now because oh. it means people are resonating with it. I'm hoping one day that DVI goes to zero because it means that we've solved some of these problems. Lower cost, better outcomes, more teamwork, support right. each other, no power distance, but still we're in a holarchy. Right. So you know much more about anesthesia than I will ever know. And I will respect and, and use that. But then again, I'll be able to tell you about hospital medicine right. and the nurse will be able to tell us how we're killing the patient at yeah. any given time. And that's a beautiful thing, but we need clinical leaders to do it. Absolutely. Yeah. So. We're at 10.55, and I know you have to be at the airport at 11. No, no, to leave at 11. <laughs> you have to leave at 11. So, yeah, otherwise you're already done. Yeah. You're going to be here with me. Um, what, do you, what do you, you have this platform now. I'm giving you my platform because I think what you have to say is important. I think our, our group here, I get a lot of messages from administrators, and they are sad. They're sad meaning I sense so much anger, resentment, fear, and what we're trying to do is what you want, which is build a better healthcare system that's sustainable, where people are paid, but they also are, 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 are supported. Work with us instead. How, how, what do you want to tell our tribe? So I, I think that the real bogey that we have going forward is clinical transformation. It's the way we're gonna get costs down, we're gonna get outcomes better. So how do we do these things that you just described that are actually better for our patients and cost less? So, you know, we talked about blood transfusion, there's antimicrobial stewardship. There are a lot of things that we as physicians can come up with because we were trained to do this, which will improve patients' outcome at a lower cost. And um, MBAs and MHAs, we love you, However, the MDs need to be the ones leading this. We Hell yeah. We don't want other people telling us how we can be better because we spend a lot of time, a lot of money in school, and I think we, we kind of know what the right thing is. And so I, I need, you know, right now I, I was telling you earlier, I've got two of my four hospital presidents are physicians. I need to have more physicians in positions of leadership across the country. And let us redesign healthcare together with nurses, nurses make great leaders. Yeah. Dietitians, yeah. Uh, you know, anyone who's been in healthcare delivery knows what that dance is like and yeah. should be there making decisions that impact us. Yeah. I'm very passionate about this. Yeah, no, that came through when I talked yeah. to you and yeah. that's why I wanted you yeah. on the show because people need to be inspired to do this. It's not selling out, it's not becoming a trader, right. it's not because you're just straight burned out and you just don't wanna see patients anymore. Yeah. Right? Although some people do do that. Right. It's more exactly what you're saying, that if we don't lead it, you know what, they're gonna do it for us. Right. And you know, when we were on the phone, you were pissed off about how all these regulation and the business side of it is pushing us to do the wrong thing because they think about us as widgets and commodities, but we're not. There's something transcendent about what we do. We know what it is, but it also obeys certain business principles like less is more, like we can create value and still have really good outcomes, that some processes should be standardized with room to violate them for that individual patient. But if we don't know the standard, how will we know when we're supposed to violate? Yeah, we do not want to become commodities. A lot of our specialties, yours and mine in particular, oh, very. have become commoditized. Yep. I mean, I can buy hospitalists on the spot market. I can just, you know, what are they going for? You know, 65 bucks a head, I'll give you 50. I'll it, give it's you. like pork belly futures, yeah, yeah. hospitals bellies. But what am I getting? What am I getting for that? And, what, and how do you feel as a commodity? You feel like a piece of crap. Oh, yeah. You know, and the worst, the people that have been impacted by this or the worst impact has been radiologists. 
radiology, and you know this because yeah, your wife, wife is yeah. radiologist, but right now in San Francisco, the, um, the payment for reading a chest x-ray is $7.50. That's what it's come to. Mm. I mean, these guys were, you know, they were in high clover at one point. And now it's like, can you, I'll read this in 10 seconds. And But it used to be, remember what it was with the radiologist? You'd meet him in the reading room and you'd consult with him. You'd say, you know, I got this patient. I mean, can you help me diagnose this? And it was a conversation. It's a beautiful yeah. thing. And yeah. how do we, so how do we redifferentiate ourselves? How do we reinvent our specialty? So we bring back that good mojo we had, working one another, working with one another, you know, I'm not trying to make America great again, but I am saying there were some good things back then, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was our collegiality, and it was our, it was our conversation, our transparency. We've got to bring that back so we don't feel like commodities. So we're making medicine great again in a way that it was never great. <laughs> exactly. So in other words, it was great in certain ways. It was terrible in others. We're yeah. going to make it even better. In the ways that it should be In better. the ways that it should be better. And who's going to do it? Us, clinicians, yeah. clinicians, leaders, with our business partners, we're going to do it. Right. Dr. Todd Strumwasser, Senior Vice President of Operations at uh, Dignity Health San Francisco Hospitals. Um, it has been a pleasure to have you on the show to, to give us the other side that we often miss in this conversation. It's been a pleasure to be here, and maybe I can come back again. If oh, we... hell yeah. Actually, I may come up there and uh, interview you at the hospital. We'll do it. You can give me a tour. Sequoia. Yeah. Oh, Sequoia's a great place. It is a great place. Yeah. Yeah, I love it there. Well, down... it Tom was born there, is that right? Tom was born in Sequoia Hospital. Yeah, we should rename it Tom Hospital. The Tom Heineber. Yeah. Uh, St. Tom's. St. Tom's. St. Thomas. St. Thomas of Heineber. Yeah, wearing his uh, stretchy outfit he's wearing. You know what? He's a millennial. You cannot fault him for athleisure wear. <laughs> <laughs> I hate Sorry. you so much, Tom Heineber. I love you, Todd Strumwasser. And we out. Okay. Hey, it's Dr. Z. Thanks for getting through the whole episode. That's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> and so at this point, I just got to ask you for a few favors because it just helps us so much if you leave a review on your favorite podcast platform and subscribe. It, it just really helps the algorithms to get this message out to others. The second thing is email me, hello at zdogmd.com. I get all these emails personally. I can't respond to them all, but I need to hear your voice because especially on podcast, we don't have a comment section. And I wanna hear how this episode affected you, what you'd like to hear in the future, what you think we got wrong, what we think we got right, anything, anything, or just say hi. So that's really powerful. And the third thing is, Financially, it helps us a lot to support the show in any way you can. And if you go to zdogmd.com forward slash supporters, you can join our supporter tribe on your favorite platform, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, wherever. What that will get you on those platforms is live shows with me that are exclusive for supporters and access to our Zoom meetings where we talk about awakening realization and we share with each other our own experience. It's a powerful group effect. It's a community, really. And we support and love each other and share, again, through our own experience, how we're waking up. So, and that that ripples out into systems, into transforming healthcare and education and government. So it st really starts with us. So join us there if you can. Again, zdogmd.com forward slash supporters. And I'm so grateful to have you with us.